Uh, I'll just start a couple of weeks ago. Kristen and I are a part of a team called the Genesis Collective. It's a, it's a group of churches that have decided to walk together to figure out how do we get the gospel to the nations? What's it going to take for us to get Jesus into other countries? And so we have uh, churches from the U.S., church from Dubai, from South Africa, from the U.K. Uh, we have uh, groups in Nicaragua and Southeast Asia. We have a group of people that are walking together in faith to say, Lord, we want to see you go to the nations. Uh, each year we host a gathering of those leaders, and usually it's an international gathering. This year, because of travel limitations, it ended up being entirely domestic. We only had our U.S. people there, but I got to be honest, you guys, it was the single greatest gathering of people following Jesus that I have ever been a part of. And I'm telling you this because I want you to be encouraged. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to create FOMO in you. I'm just trying to say God is at work in a crazy powerful way in the churches here in the United States and through our friends around the world. And it was an unbelievable experience. Kristen and I are part of the leadership team. It was exhausting but so overwhelmingly joyful to see how God is at work in so many places and doing so many things. And I just want to share that with you because it is a huge and exciting thing. So then we came down the mountain, literally, that was up in Big Bear. So we came down the mountain to getting ready to send our oldest son, Andrew, to Colorado. Uh, so we had a plan. Actually, today I was supposed to be preaching in Anthem, Denver. Uh, Kristen and I had a plan. We were going to do an epic road trip across the country, drop Andrew off in the Rocky Mountains, just random spot in the Rocky Mountains, see if he could survive. It's a survival gap year. Um, and so we were going to go drop him off at his program and then spend a couple of days in the mountains and then go uh, spend the weekend with Anthem, Denver. Uh, and then my son Tyler got COVID. And how many of you have had some life event interrupted by COVID? Just raise your hand if you've had some life event interrupted by COVID at some point in the last year and a half. All right. It's kind of lame, right? No, it's okay to say. It's, it's kind of lame to have life events interrupted by COVID. It was like we were grieving. We didn't know if we were going to be able to go out. Our whole plan changed. The whole idea of getting Andrew into his program, it was like, we had this big thing in mind, and I was so overwhelmingly excited. And I got to be honest, my wife is somewhat prophetic. She kept telling me, Matt, don't get too excited. Stuff happens. It's a tumultuous world. Just be ready for something to go wrong. Now, I'm kind of an optimist. Nothing ever goes wrong ever in my picture of the future. Uh, Kristen calls herself a realist, and things always go wrong in her picture of the future. So that's a little bit of our marital uh, situation. And so she says that, and Tyler came down with COVID, uh, I don't know, 12 days ago, something like that. He's okay, by the way. We got the call that he's out of quarantine, his sore throat's gone, whatever. It was not a terrible thing. We were so grateful. We had a back house that we could quarantine him in, and he was living his best life now, watching, I don't know, Marvel movies for seven straight days, and then whatever. 14-year-old dream, right? Yeah, mid-school, mid get COVID, and uh, it's not that bad, and then you just get to quarantine and watch Marvel movies. Um, but our plan changed. Uh, we did end up getting to take Andrew out and put him in, but it was uh, I took a red eye out and then flew back the same day. We just didn't feel like we could be gone from Tyler for that long. Kristen did drive out with Andrew. They did a, a, a one-and-a-half-day haul from California to Fraser, Colorado, and then she flew home with me. Uh, we got to bless him and pray over him and, and put him into his new program, and we're really, really grateful for that. But it was just so different. It was so different. And so our world's just been in this, like, 
kind of crazy emotional state. And I was preparing for this passage, and uh, I felt like our experience for the last month is pretty connected to what I'm about to share with you today. God wants to move in power. Jesus has the power to move in your life and the world that we're in. Sometimes a sinister and evil world, sometimes just a broken and fallen world. The way that it goes together, those are both a reality. But the world is working to rob us of our joy, to rob us of our resilience, to rob us of our passion. This world and Satan want you to be as apathetic as possible towards the gospel of Jesus. They want you to get totally distracted by all of the minutia of the broken world that we're in. But Jesus has a different way, and that's what we're going to find in this. So if you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 9. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a long story, the whole chapter. It's one story, but there's a lot of stuff in this. So I want to encourage you to, uh, to follow along as we walk through this story of Jesus healing a blind man. All right, John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciple asked him, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. That's the second time Jesus has said he is the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, not COVID safe, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. Yes, I am the guy. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it is, was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. We're in full investigation mode here. And asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son. And that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. 
Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. That's the ultimate insult. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. All right, so this is a pretty wild story. The first thing that we're going to point out, and this feels somewhat obvious, and if you've been a part of the church for any length of time, or if you, uh, if you know the story of God, what I'm about to say should feel somewhat obvious. But the first thing that we see from this is that Jesus has the power to change lives. So Jesus is walking on this road, and he sees a man that's blind. So first of all, Jesus notices the blind man. They're just outside or around Jerusalem, and Jesus notices a blind man. And the disciples, maybe they pick up on Jesus looking at this guy, and they say, all right, let's get into a little bit of a theological debate. They want to understand what their rabbi would say about this. And this is a great question for people with disabilities. Whose sin is to account for this disability? That's what they ask him. This man is born blind. Was it him that sinned? Or was it his parents' sin? Those are the two options that the disciples have in their framework. Clearly in their minds, a disability is directly connected to sin somewhere in the line. And Jesus says, you're wrong. The disability component of this, and I, I won't spend a ton of time on this, but I just want you to hear this. The disability component, Jesus tells you right now, this is not a result of any person's specific sin but that the works of God may be seen. There is brokenness in this world. And part of the reason that there's brokenness in the world is that brokenness will be undone by the creator of the universe and all will be made right. All will be restored to whole and complete. And so I just want you to hear this. 
especially if you yourself are disabled or if you know somebody that was disabled, you need to understand there is not a, a specific sin that is resulting in that disability. And Jesus tells you right here and right now, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. So then Jesus goes to the man after he's talked to his disciples for a minute and says, we need to do something about this while I'm here. I'm going to show you that I am the light of the world. So he goes to the man and he, (laughs) it's kind of a weird thing to think about. Jesus spits in the dirt and makes mud. Now the Bible gives us absolutely no indication why Jesus spat in the mud. So I want to hear some theories. Why do you think Jesus spat in the dirt and made mud? Anybody want to share just a a theory? Yeah. A home remedy. Okay. It was his essential oil concoction that Jesus made and put on the blind man's eyes. That's what he did. All right. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? No theories? I see you pointing. Where? Oh yeah. Ken. Okay, creation. This is an allusion back to Genesis that God went to the dust and out of the dust of the earth, he created man. And Jesus goes and with his saliva and the dust of the earth, he brings sight to a man born blind. That's a great thought. Yeah. Okay, that's a really interesting one. A delayed healing where Jesus puts mud on the guy's eyes and sends him to a pool to wash. Do you realize that it's not until verse, oh, 35 that the blind man gets to lay his seeing eyes on Jesus? That's a great thought. So you think about this. Jesus did something that, oh, yeah, you got one, Dad? Oh, yeah, you got one. All right, let's hear it. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat this, that the mud represented sin being washed off. So he, he actually put the mud on the guy's eyes and had him go and wash as a representation of being washed of our sin. That is a great thought. Eddie, right? Or is Eddie your brother? You're Eddie. All right. Thank you. When you think about this picture, you get a, a number of things going on. You get Jesus demonstrating complete and total authority. Something to think about just when you think about the idea of healing. Jesus does give us the spirit. He gives us power to walk in. He tells us that we're going to experience greater things than than people saw while Jesus was with him. We believe that healings continue on into this present day, that the spirit is active and at work and continues to heal even to this very day. We fully and completely believe that. We know that Jesus has power. And one of the things that is demonstrated here and now is the authority that Jesus has over a fallen world. That what goes on in our lives can, and if we are willing, will be used to display the works of God. How many of you know John Franklin? Do you remember John Franklin? Anybody know him personally? Raise your hand if you know John Franklin. All right. John helped us start Anthem Church. Uh, He was the executive pastor at uh, EV Free Caneo Valley when I was working there. And then when we came to plant Anthem, John and Patty came with us. 
Uh, John still to this day is in a wheelchair and has been, I think it's about 35 years now that he's been in a wheelchair. So most of his life, probably 40 years of his life, not in a wheelchair, and then 30 to 35 years of his life in a wheelchair. He was on a softball field, had some undiagnosed nerve issue that caused him to collapse, and he has been in an electric wheelchair ever since, and that's, that's been John's story. Now, uh, you would have to dig deep into our YouTube archives or Vimeo archives, but we have a testimony of John sharing about his experience of being in a wheelchair. I, I don't know that I could count the amount of times that uh, we've prayed for healing for John. We've asked the Lord that he would stand up and walk. Uh, I, and that even before my time, you could talk to my parents and countless times the elders anointed him with oil and prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him that he would be healed, that he would be able to stand up and walk. And to this day, John is still in a wheelchair. And John will tell you to this day that he is in a wheelchair so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. He is a man of deep and profound faith. And his personal experience, his inability to walk, he has a choice. He has a choice to make, as do each one of us, with whatever your lot in life is, whatever you steward as a human being. Is it going to display the works of God? Or is there something that you're going to do to thwart that? I can tell you there's something that John could have done to thwart the work of God and him staying in a wheelchair. He could have complained. He could have sunken into himself and, and gone away and hid. He could have chosen not to worship God. He could have chosen to be bitter and resentful that he was not healed when other people were. But God put a different kind of story into John. And John chose a different kind of path. And that was to say, more power to him. How do I, in this chair, honor God with my body. There are times that God breaks in and heals, and there are stories in this church of people that have been physically healed from things that were going on in their life, in their body, in their person. And then there are countless stories of people who have not. I'm deaf in my left ear. I've been prayed for dozens of times that my hearing would restore, 100%, gone. Fell off a kitchen counter when I was three years old, fractured my skull, can't hear a thing. I used to sit on the end of the bench playing baseball. Uh, yeah, I played baseball on the bench. And uh, I would send the signs to the uh, starting catcher. And uh, every once in a while, I'd hear my name get called while I'm focused on the game and sending signs to the other catcher. And I would turn and look down the line at the other guys on the bench, and they would all start cracking up. And I'm like, what? And they said, we've been calling your name for 10 minutes. That's the first time you heard us. Uh, that idea for me was like I grew up wanting to hear having it prayed for, but never receiving healing. Every single one of us has a choice to make. This man, even after being healed, had a choice to make. How do I respond to the things that God's doing in my life? So Jesus has the power. He has the ability. The things that go on in our life have the ability to be used to honor God or to not honor God, and there's a choice to be made. So let's keep going in the story. The story has two really exciting components, the beginning and the end, and one really long and really discouraging middle. 
The guy gets healed, and everybody gets involved doubting, full of skepticism, frustrated, angry, resentful, cutting down, and trying to figure out every possible way to explain this other than a miracle. And here's what happens. I'm not going to go through all the ins and outs of the Jews and the Pharisees and the different the neighbors and the different people that are involved in this story, all trying to figure out ways to explain what happened apart from a work of God. But here's what I will do. I'll say this. This is kind of the way that it works. Jesus will move in power in your life. You will get met in a powerful way. Okay, this is why I shared a bit of the opening, our experience up in Big Bear. Uh, I don't know that I have ever experienced worship in a community of people like I got to experience up in Big Bear. We got to hear a, a, a talk from one of our friends, DJ, who leads Imago Day Church. And then after that came uh, a prophetic word and then a prophetic song. And out of that came this confession time where 35 leaders confessed their sin and their brokenness and the things that they had fallen short in publicly to this room full of people. I mean, it was impossible to look at what was going on and say, God is not at work here. We came out of that. We came down from that completely and totally filled. And I mean, I I didn't even know how how to contain what God had done in us. And then within a week, our son has COVID and our plans are getting destroyed and our whole world is in chaos and and a lot of the joy that we came out of Big Bear with was robbed in an instant. This man was born blind and people are saying, oh, you're not that guy. Are you really that guy? Parents, come on, this isn't really that guy. He wasn't really born blind. There's no way that he was healed. Oh, if he was healed, Jesus was wrong, and he did it on the Sabbath, and he shouldn't have done that, and this was a bad situation. Everything about this is wrong. God moves in power, and the world tries to diminish our experience of the power of God. If you were here last week, Bert taught on Matthew 13. It was the parable of the of the soils, the seed goes out and there's one where the the seeds are planted among the thorns and the thorns choke out the work of God, the seed, the the gospel, the message being spoken. And in in that section, in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus is explaining it, he says this in Matthew 13, 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So here's the, the choice. This family, including the man that was healed, was under immense pressure. This guy is seeing for the first time in his entire life and everybody that is around him is trying to get him to deny the person that healed him. Even under threat that he would be expelled or that his parents would be expelled from the synagogue. Now you need to understand the synagogue is not just like where they go to church and they could, you know, you get kicked out of Anthem and all of a sudden you're at Calvary next week or all of a sudden you're at First Christian, uh, you know, Newbury Park next week or something like that. Like it's not that way. 
I want you to think of a town and the center of the community where all things point to this group of people doing life together and somebody being told, you can't have that if you confess Jesus. This life together that we do, this whole community, I know we live in a place with multi-faith, right? There's a lot of people that believe a lot of different things. Imagine living in a city where everybody is Jewish. Nobody misses synagogue. You don't show up late. There's not anybody in town that's not showing up. So think of a town of 400 people, and 100% of them are going to synagogue, and you're not allowed. Oh, you believe in Jesus? No, not you. So the family is under immense pressure. And the blind man says this one thing. And it works like a weed whacker to take down the thorns, the cares, and the deceitfulness of this world. This guy takes a machete to those thorns by saying this one thing. Hey, all I know, I was blind but now I see. And here's what I want you to walk away with from that particular passage. Your experience matters in your testimony of the gospel. What God has done in you at some point is not something to run away from. It's something to run towards. We're oftentimes told that if we don't have facts and statistics to back up our experience, if we don't have uh, all, of the, all of the things lined up, our theological understanding's perfect, we shouldn't testify to the goodness of God. And the reality is, you have you, and that matters. You get to tell the story of this is where my life was going, and then I met Jesus, and it went a completely different direction. Everything about me is different now. I know where I would have been had I not met Jesus, and now my entire story is being rewritten by the power of the gospel. I can't tell you everything about the Bible. I can't answer every question you might have, but I can tell you my life was changed. Your experience matters when you testify to the goodness of God. Now, I'm not going to ask this in any way to humiliate anybody, and I won't even ask you to share, but I do want to see a show of hands. How many of you could testify to a directional shift in your life because the gospel entered your story? How many of you could testify something was different about me, and then I was changed completely by the power of God? All right. What you carry is what this man carries. Your story testifies to the power and the goodness of God at work in this world. And you get to express the reality of the miracle of God at work in you today, tomorrow, and every day moving forward. And when you do that, here's the thing. When you do that, it's like taking a weed whacker or a machete to these thorns, the cares of life that want to choke out the gospel. When you testify to the gospel, you are beating back the cares of this world. You are hacking away at them because those things matter less than God at work in you. 
Those things want to rob you of your joy, the cares of this world, the things that bog us down, the stuff that piles up. Satan would love, he doesn't need you. Just so you know this, I want you to hear this. Satan is not out to get Satan worshipers. That's just not his objective. I kind of wonder sometimes if he actually laughs at true Satan worshipers. Just the, the sort of comical aspect of worshiping the antithesis of God is sort of a strange thing. All he cares about is not Jesus. That's it. He doesn't care if you're one degree off or 180 degrees off. He wants your eyes off of Jesus. That's it. He will lie to you. He will smother you. He will discourage you. He will do anything that he can to undercut the powerful work of God in your life. And sometimes it just comes from the volume of everything around you getting louder and louder and louder. And life just feels totally and completely overwhelming. And anything that God wants to do is overshadowed by the loudness, the chaos, the difficulty of what's going on around you. So I want you to hear how this man responded when he finally met Jesus. Because this, this is where we're going to close out, and this is pretty important. So if you have your Bibles, go to verse 35, and we're going to, uh, chapter 9, verse 35, we're going to finish out here. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. So uh, this is a condensed story, but you should probably know all of this probably took place over a week or more. Just think about the fact that they're investigating a story, finding parents. There's no internet. They don't have the ability to just track people down unless they happen to live across the street. There's travel involved. There's stuff going on. This is something that would take days or weeks or more. They are researching and trying to understand this. And eventually this trial concludes with this man being cast out because he won't deny Jesus and call him a sinner. And so he is cast out. And Jesus hears that he's been cast out and he goes to find him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, I want you to hear some important things. Number one, a blind man doesn't get to go through Hebrew school. This kid did not do all the same stuff that everybody else did. He didn't know the Old Testament like everybody knew the Old Testament. He didn't have all the experiences like everybody else had all the experiences. He didn't grow up in the same way that the other kids did. He doesn't have the full storyline. We don't know where he would get what information he would get. But Jesus comes and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And his answer is, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Okay, uh, tell me about this Son of Man. See, a normal Jew, when you would go and speak to them about the Son of Man, they're like, oh, Daniel 9. I don't know if they would say that, like, with that voice. That's a little arrogant. But um, they might just respond with joy. They're remembering instantly these references, these things about the Son of Man, this anticipation that God is going to move. And they would say, oh, okay, the Son of Man. This guy says, who? And Jesus said to him, oh, you've seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. I want you to hear this. And this is really helpful for those of you that don't come from a Jewish background, that are not actively looking for a Messiah to save the world. Maybe you come from some totally different background. You have no history in this whatsoever. This guy believes in Jesus. 
He doesn't know everything that there is to know. But he knows that he met a man that with power took away his greatest obstacle in life and it changed him forever. So Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, who's that? Jesus said, it's me. And he's like, oh, yes, I believe. If the Son of Man is you, I'm all in because you changed my life. That's what's going on in this man's reaction. And so I want you to hear this. He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Now, what do you think that was like when he worshiped him? Let's just, uh, let's just kind of play this out for a half second. This man was blind, and now he sees. And Jesus comes to him and finds him after he's been cast out of the synagogue. Again, the thorns may be closing in on this man. Is there, was I wrong? Do I need to defend somebody I've never met? Maybe I just needed to say the guy was a sinner and live with my sight and I could be a part of the community. I've been an outsider my whole life. I finally have have a chance to be an insider and I get cast out because I won't say that the guy that healed me is a sinner. And Jesus comes to him and says, do you believe in the son of man? He says, ah, who's that? It's me. Now, can you imagine? Guy's never seen Jesus before but he has heard his voice. And he hears the voice of Jesus and he believes in him and he worships. And I got to figure that this worship is not this guy standing with one hand in his pocket saying, sing a little louder. Sing a little louder. In fact, when the Bible says he worshiped him, Do you know what that word actually means? It means that he laid prostrate. (laughs) I'm feeling really awkward right now. That happened on the streets in a public place where everybody that had just cast this man out of the synagogue was standing and watching him. We know that because of the next conversation that takes place. This man learns that Jesus changed his life forever, and his only response is to fall down on the ground and worship him, to declare with his actions what is true in his heart. He worships him. There's a preacher named John Piper that says this about worship. He says, worship refers to that valuing, that inner valuing becoming visible in the world. Worship is what's inside of you that's important coming out. And when that comes out, it's described as worship. The thing that you care about being made manifest in the world is your act of worship. That's you testifying to the goodness of God. That's you saying what I value should be seen by everybody. So there's a a flip side of this. What that means is that at all times and in all places, everybody knows what you worship. What you manifest, what you produce 
with your life, with your words, with your attitude, with your hands, with your finances, with your home, what you manifest, the inner value becoming visible puts on display what you worship. Now I've got two, there's a fork in the road with this sermon. Guilt and discipleship. Anybody got a preference? Guilt says, how dare you? If this world doesn't see Jesus glowing on you 100% of the time, what are you even doing claiming the name of Jesus? That would be the, that would be the, the guilt, guilt Pastor Matt. Not going that road. Discipleship is us together learning what it means to be the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Guess what else he said? You are the light of the world. When you have Jesus in you, you let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and praise your Father who's in heaven. That's Matthew 5, 17. What it means is that your life is an act of worship. It's not just when these guys come up here and play the holy chord that you get to really worship God. That is an expression. That's part of it. That's a piece of worship. That's corporate, gathered, together worship. And I love corporate, gathered, together worship. When they say sing a little louder, you know what I do? I sing a little louder. In the presence of my enemies, by the way, that song is very contentious in the church. It's like looking around like, yeah. But worship goes way beyond that. So here's where worship lands. Does the way that you speak to your husband or wife, if you have one, Does it demonstrate an inner value of the glory of God? And there's some nuance there. There's some growth in that. I speak to Kristen a thousand times differently today than I did 20 years ago when we were brand newly married. God has shaped and refined and crushed the old me in the most beautiful and important way and restored and refreshed the new me in the most powerful and beautiful way. And it's called sanctification and it's beautiful. It's being made into somebody that no longer speaks like a selfish jerk, but instead wants to serve my beloved bride by showing her Jesus today more than she ever saw him yesterday. Is how you neighbor, like in your physical house with the people around you. We have a parking battle with our neighbors. It's the stupidest thing. They have so much parking, why don't they just stay on their side? Satan's favorite thing to do is to get under my skin and remind me of what's mine. That's my curb. Nobody parks on my curb. I mean, this is silly, but it's real. 
Because stuff like that starts there. And I get a seed planted in my heart, defending what's mine. And then it blooms into all kinds of other spaces. And I start to defend what's mine in other places. That's the foothold of Satan that Paul talks about in Ephesians. But sanctification is teaching me how to be a better neighbor. How to love and show generosity and express the goodness of God. My hope for this, and I'm going to wrap up with this final thought. My hope for this is that you walk out of this. Two things. One, in no guilt whatsoever, but a readiness to move forward, that you come out wanting to worship God with your actions, with the way that you live your life, that people, when they meet you, see that you value Jesus. The way you speak to them, the way you're generous with them, the way you show them love, the way you're grateful for the world that you're in, the circumstances that you're in, the amazing and awesome opportunity that we have to be alive, this beautiful state that we live in, this amazing country that we live in, the awesomeness of God at work in us, pouring out of us and blessing everybody around us as a part of our worship. It doesn't mean you can't have concerns or can't have uh, broken things that, that, that you weigh and hold. That's not the, the issue, but but even in that, can people see Jesus pouring out of you? That's worship. That's one. And the second is this. And I realize that we have a lot of new people here, so I just want to teach you something. And Shannon, you guys can start coming up here. I want to teach you something about the way that we worship God corporately. Something is supposed to happen when we gather as the body of Christ. Um... I don't have a great biblical reference for this, except, except that we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. That the spirit-filled life will produce corporate worship that demonstrates our inner value. There's no performance and there's no guilt. So we don't live in either of those two places. If you need to be quiet, shut your mouth. I'm serious. Don't ever feel like you need to perform for the people around you. Don't ever feel like worship here is about lifting your hands so that other people think something about you uh, or singing loud so that other people think something about you. Never. And if we ever say anything from the stage that makes you feel that, I hope that you're hearing me now and I say, knock it off. No. Shut us down. Call us out for that because that is not what we're trying to do. Even singing a song like Sing a Little Louder, it's not designed to make you feel guilty for not singing a little louder. It's designed to call out a corporate cry in us for more. And my encouragement to you as we, as we sing is not that you would perform but that whatever is inside of you would be released as a blessing to those around you. Whatever you value this morning about Jesus, when we worship Jesus, that you would allow that inner value to manifest, to be on display, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. That's to each other and to the Lord. And so we manifest our inner value. We produce 
the inner stuff becoming outer stuff as a blessing to the body. So I'll reiterate, if it's not there, don't do it. But if it is there, full force. Full worship. Nothing to hide. The value that you have for the good news of Jesus manifesting in this tent. Can we practice? Not, not like, I'm not going to make you practice like we're going to sing a few bars. But let's view this as practice. Let's take the songs that we're about to sing and say, okay, if it's there, I'm going to actually practice producing a worship externally that exists internally. And we'll say, this is an opportunity for us to be trained as worshipers. Every Sunday is. But we want to put into action the things that we declare and know to be true. This is why we say that our, our giving offering is an act of worship because it's, it's manifesting what we value internally. Our prayer team is a part of worship. It demonstrates our faith that we would go and be prayed for. Our communion is an act of worship because we're manifesting the physical taking of communion that represents the finished work of Jesus. These are acts of worship, as is our singing. So if it's there, let's sing. So why don't we stand together? Shannon's going to lead us. Jason's going to lead us. These guys are going to lead us in a song together.